And now a word from one of our Bible Live sponsors. Our company is so proud and excited to sponsor the Bible Live. As a businessman, I have to make decisions every day about how to best invest time, personnel, and resources for the best return and results. The scriptures say there are two things on earth that will last forever, God's Word and the souls of people. It's my hope that you, your family, your church, and perhaps even your business will pray about giving a tax-deductible donation to the Bible Live at this time. Together, let's expand this historic broadcast of the scriptures to other cities across our nation, a sound investment for both time and eternity. You can donate by credit card at the Bible Live website www.thebiblelive.com or mail your check for the Bible Live to P.O. Box 18888. That's P.O. Box 18888, San Antonio, Texas 78218. Welcome to the Bible Live Quiz Hour. It's time to test and grow your knowledge of the Bible. The entire Bible every year. On Sunday nights at 9, join us here for the Bible Live Quiz Hour. Some people ask questions from the Bible Live leads. You call in with the correct answers, and you win. It's just that simple. So get out your Bible, put on your thinking cap, and hit that speed dial. Because here's the host of the Bible Live. Your Apache Indian scout through the book of books, Soapy Dollar. Mouth, John. Is there, yeah, are we on the air? Are we, we are on the, on the air already. Oh, is there anybody else on the show with you? <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> oh yeah, oh yeah. There's this, um, there's this Jewish fellow that really. Uh, what, what's his name? What's his pal, name? My pal, my pal, Jacob. Thank ah. you. Oh, thank you, thank you, ladies and gentlemen. He brought his, he brought his own uh, applause tonight. That's it's great. Yeah, Jacob and I here. We are ready to start through our. Study in our uh, review of the passages that we read this past week in our reading schedule. We finished up the Gospel of Mark. There was a short book. The Gospel of Mark is only 16 chapters long. We got through it here just in a few days, actually. Uh, but tonight we'll revisit the book, of, the Gospel of Mark. What is its theme? What is its particular perspective of this uh, Jesus of Nazareth? Uh, and we'll talk about that in just a moment. But then we turned back to the Tanakh, back to the Hebrew Scriptures on Friday, and we read Joshua chapters 1 through 5. And so we'll get into those exciting chapters. As you know, we left the people of Israel back in the book of Deuteronomy. Actually, we have never left them. No, no, no. But we in our, in our journey through the Scriptures, we left them camped on the east side of the Jordan the last month of Moses' life, he was there. He uh, taught them. He gave these lectures. Yeah, he these, gave the lectures. The book of Deuteronomy, and what we know is the book of Deuteronomy. And uh, then he goes up on Mount Pisgah, and Pisgah. I don't know how they say it, but they go, and he then is able to see into the promised land and see, as you've yeah. mentioned, the promised land, the yeah. future of the land, and so. On. And then uh, the. People of Israel are ready now to go over, cross the River Jordan. And that's going to be what we're after Mark, we'll go into Joshua. The book of Joshua. And I want to tell you, the last chapter we're going to be doing, we're going to do the first five chapters of Joshua. And for any of the listeners that want to hang on that long, uh, that is a chapter in chapter five about circumcision. And we're going to talk a little bit about to that 
perhaps in the last half hour, uh-huh. because believe it or not, one Torah study I go to, we've been debating that stuff for, I don't know, five weeks. I was silent for three weeks. But it's not a debate. I should say discussion in all fairness. But I suspect that the women were for and the men were against. Is that well? No, no. I would say if it was about in circumcision. This particular study, uh, I'm not sure what the position would be. But I will say this: since we're going to talk about Joshua uh-huh. and doing the circumcision on people before they entered into the land, mm-hmm. we're going to find out why and what that stuff is all about. Okay, we'll get to that. And of course, it's a very Mark. exciting time oh, yeah. because they're. Cross over the Jordan, they go right, right. to Joshua fight the battle of Jericho, the big city, the walled city of Jericho, and they fight this great battle. And I mean, it gets exciting right off the bat because right it's a, the they're bat. moving into the promised land under the leadership of this uh, man named Joshua, wow. uh, whom we remember as well from uh, from earlier. He was an assistant to Moses, right? You know what an interesting boy, Soapy. Wasn't he? You actually said it correctly. Okay, good. Do you know that in the Torah, the word that's used for Moses, he's called for the first time Eved, which is servant or slave, depending. But it's really not slave. It's uh-huh. servant. Moses is a servant. But Joshua is exactly he's called the assistant. Soapy, I am so impressed. <laughs> How about that? Well, I, even a blind hog gets an acre every now and again, right? Well, but then would you he, like to know the Hebrew we, we've words? We've heard about no? him. Yeah, yeah, sure. Okay. okay, the servant would be Eved. Evek. Eved. 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 That's Moses. That's right. Moshe. And the, and the other and the other word is Mashacharim. Mashacharim. Mashacharim, which uh, Maharim, which is uh, like an as- attendant. Or an associate, a sir, what word did you use? Associate, uh, 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 assistant, assistant. Uh, that's yeah. a better, That's a perfect word, boy. That's right on the cool, money. Cool, cool, cool. Well, we'll like I said, we know Joshua already. We've met him, and he's going to lead the people of Israel now into the promised land. And uh, we'll get to that when we hit Joshua. But now let's get back really quickly to the Gospel of Mark and the 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 distinctive uh, that. I guess we understand or that we've been taught about the Gospel of Matthew is that it's Matthew. Matthew, the first book, is presenting Jesus particularly and especially to uh, a Jewish audience, saying, giving his credentials as the Messiah, uh, the prophecies fulfilled, the life he led, uh, and so on, uh, presenting uh, Jesus as the Messiah. Now, Mark has a, a... a distinctive to us, it seems that he is he is centering in and focusing on the lifestyle of Jesus uh, of Nazareth. That he he had a lifestyle of servanthood, he, his servant nature. He, we see him going from village to village, from family to family, from person to person, healing, lifting people up, giving hope and, and new life, and raising people from the dead, and serving. People, so we mark distinctive is that the servant nature of the Messiah, and and it is pretty amazing this um, this this individual Jesus of Nazareth. He uh-huh. he's born there. He's a he's a committed uh, practicing. Uh, uh, Jewish man. He grows up as a Jewish man. He, he he's 
does everything according to the law, according to the Torah. Uh, he presents himself to John the Baptist so that he can begin his ministry in a, a, a legit, at least in a uh, in the religious sense, in a, in a correct, uh, righteous way. And he carries out his ministry, presents himself as that long-awaited, long-promised Messiah. Now, he doesn't fulfill the popular notion of what the Messiah is supposed to be and do. Uh, It seems like in the popular notion, at least among many of that era, was that he was to come and deliver the people of Israel out from under Roman um, domination. Uh, That that was at least one idea. Yeah, no, no, I'm not disagreeing at all. But I'm saying, isn't that why... As I understand it, peeking in the window, isn't that why Christians have a second coming? Because when he comes back, as I read the book of Revelation in the New Testament, as I read that, he does exactly what they expected him to right. do the first time. Right. Now, when he does that, if he comes back, my first question would be, have you been here before? And then if he does that, I think we've got to say, you know, he's doing what he was supposed to do, yeah. what we expected. Yeah. So if he does that, now that's a requirement, but I see that. As it, that's why the Christians have the so-called second coming. Mm-hmm. And as I read in Revelation, he comes back and does exactly the picture that the Jews were expecting. Mm-hmm. If that takes place, then I think we have, uh, we've reached an agreement. Okay. Well, actually, well, I, I'm not trying to disagree or, being no. dis- or be disagreeable. No, never. But, <laughs> but we didn't actually invent the notion of a second coming. He ah. was the one that told us, I'm going to come again. I will re- I'll return. Ah, I see. Well, we, <laughs> so, could, we could say this, that uh, Christians yeah. have the idea because it, the Bible in the New Testament says yeah. that. Jesus said, I will return. I will come ah. to, to my people. It, which is an interesting concept because as we look through the Hebrew Scriptures, the Tanakh, the, not only the, the, the Torah, the first five books, but the prophetic books and so on, the things that are mentioned about the Messiah – there always has been a little bit of a disconnect, as I understand. Now, you can correct me if no, I'm no, wrong. That's okay. There's been a little bit of a disconnect between the two. There were two conflicting kind of predictions about the Messiah. Some presented him as a suffering servant, as one who would was humble and, and uh, suffering. He would take our, our stripes and so on. There, there were some that presented the Messiah as a servant model, and others, other places talked about him as all the nations of the world. I will make them your footstool. He'll be a conquering king, uh, a, a savior for the people of God. And uh, so there were, even before he came, I think there were this weren't weren't there these kind of conflicting notions of wow that there were these two ideas. Well, I don't know. I, I don't disagree with what substance of what you're saying, but I don't know if I can go along with the word conflicting. I'm not, I see them as uh, cooperative companion verses, not conflicting. But okay. Uh, no, I do too, particularly as we see them in the life of Jesus. But I'm just saying that they are two different kind of versions of this Messiah who's going to come. He's going to come and be a conquering king, and he's going to, you know, put the Romans to flight and, and liberate Israel from their domination. And, and he's going to be a, a, a man of arms, a, a deliverer in that sense, or is he going to be a, a, a servant, uh, th- that sort of thing. And, of course, you've kind of highlighted in the life of Jesus the idea is that he comes first as a, a servant uh, 
to redeem, to lift up the you know the discouraged and the suffering, and, and to lift up. But then again, of course, the conquering king element is left. It seems to his second when he returns again as the conquering king. He comes well, first as servant. It, sure, absolutely. Maybe that's the, the idea of it. But I, it, it seemed like that. I've heard at least that that little bit of a not a contra- not not a conflict necessarily or a contradiction but there were these two kind of understandings and uh you know we've in seminary were taught certain things like uh, Jeremiah in particular uh, they say it's like a car that's driving down the highway and it's got its headlights on and he comes uh upon a hilltop and his headlights light up the hilltop the first hilltop and they go across, but there's a little valley in between them, and it lights up the second hilltop. And the first hilltop is a servant nature, the, the coming of the Messiah, humble, riding on a donkey and that sort of thing. And then the second hilltop is the conquering king and so on. But what they didn't see, what they didn't pre- preview, or pre- didn't foresee from the Hebrew Scriptures was that valley in between what we call the, the, the church age. The, the time of the, the Gentile, the times the Gentiles are swept into God's kingdom in embracing monotheism and the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and um, essentially uh, millions and millions upon by the influence of this Jesus of Nazareth. So the the idea is that they didn't see that valley; they saw both they saw both the humble servant, suffering servant, and they saw the king. But they didn't see the valley in between of the church. That's kind of the way they. Well, that's not a problem. Tell us. If it's that's what they of, teach you in seminary, then yeah, that's yeah, what that's you ought to teach. Kind of the. <laughs> that's kind of the way we've come to see it, uh, and it fun. looks like it fits actually, the model. One of the actually. dilemmas that always comes up when I, and of course I, I read the New Testament uh-huh. as an adult, but I must say when I read, especially like in the Book of Romans, uh-huh. when I read it, I think, okay, so we know in chapter eleven it talks about that you know part of Israel doesn't didn't recognize him, that kind of business. Uh-huh. But I always had had this question. Let's say Israel, and since that's our topic and our focus, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. let's say that Israel had said, okay, we're going to buy it. We're all in. We're yeah. in. Okay. Then that means I always have to ask the question, well, who is it that you're trying to keep out of heaven? Is it the North Koreans, perhaps? Is it the Lebanese? People from or, India. Those people from India. Yeah, yeah those, or maybe India. Those Hindus. So, because, uh, uh, no, uh, those Native Americans. Oh, okay. But you see, the point <laughs> is, that, and I, as I'm reading That's this, me, folks, by the way. I understand, because yeah. it clearly says, uh, when the t- time of the Gentiles is fulfilled, then the Jews. It says it twice yeah. in the New Testament. says it in Romans. Jesus himself said it. So... Yeah, the times of the Gentiles, as I'm reading it, I've thought to myself many times, let's say you're right. And if you're right, if all Israel had bought in, then the times of the Gentiles wasn't getting there, and that means there's a whole bunch of people in the world that didn't get in. Yeah. That's a little interesting to me. Well, I, of course, that we can't spend too much time on it because it's no, we can't. It's speculation, you know, uh, about well, what, know, what if, you know, and uh, what if. Well, all we know for sure is it says until the time of the Gentiles is yeah. fulfilled, mm-hmm. and Jesus Himself says it, and it says in Romans, which yeah. is written by Paul. I get it. So when I get it, I'm thinking, now wait a minute. What if it means exactly what it's saying? What if it says? Jews, you guys, hold on till we get everybody in, and then you come across the line. Now, what if it means that? It, it could, and it seems like Paul had that 
if you read the book of Romans, it, it seems like he had that to some degree in mind. That was the way he understood. Now, but again, of course, we always have to go back to the idea that Paul himself is a Jew, a really very committed, practicing uh, well, I think Jew. It, I think and not men, only that, but I think he's a very Peter, educated James, Jew. Yeah, and, and many, uh, most, oh, through the centuries, Millions of Jewish men and women have embraced the Messiah. So we're not talking about... And at least two-thirds of the world does not today. Right, exactly. So there's a, what, a, how many, 1.9 billion Christians in the world, mm-hmm. right? Huh? At least, yeah, and a I broad think that, sense. Okay, well, that's what I get from Google. What do mm-hmm, I know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's, what, one, about 1.4, 1.5 billion Muslims. And then we have Chinese, which makes up another couple billion, I yeah. guess. And you have a billion in India. So there's a whole bunch of people. And out of all this, yeah. you have this little tiny nation called Israel. And, and right now today, somewhere in the, the world... There's between 15 and 20 million Jews. That'll admit they're Jews. That's all. And, and there's the great more majority Jews. of them are not believers. They're not believers. practicing Jews, right? The nation of Israel, for example, is highly secularized. There's not well. Not, most of the people a, in a Jew is in a Jew Israel. is a Jew, no matter what, no matter. And believing, and I just want to make it clear that in, for any Jewish listeners, that I I know what Soapy's saying, and I also understand what the Jewish listeners will what I'm going to say. That belief is not a requirement in the Jewish world. Uh, what you believe is a requirement for the Christians, but it's not a belief in the Jewish world. Now, the reason I'm saying this is so that if the Jewish listeners are listening, they'll know that I understand that. But I'm also accepting that your understanding is that there's not believers. Believers is not a requirement. Now, that's a confusing. We can explore that if you want. But of course, I'm not I, talking about ethnic Judaism. I know that. You're right. For that, there's no belief the involved. From the Jewish point just... of view, this is important for all of us to understand uh-huh, so we can uh-huh, have a dialogue. Uh-huh. From the Jewish point of view, not the Christian or the Muslim, but from the Jewish point of view, a Jew is a Jew is a Jew and always is a Jew. If he's atheistic, if, if he's, he's atheistic, doesn't matter at all. If a Jew goes off and becomes a Muslim or a Hindu, that's just a sin. The sin can be forgiven. He still is always a Jew. Okay. Now, see, that's a little different thought than what most Christians well, are used to. Well, I yeah, it is a little. It, I don't know about most Christians, but well, let me for say me this. in my logical mind, my anecdotal experience teaches me that's most Christians. So that's only based okay, on my experience. Yeah. Uh, uh, wow. I, know, I don't know what know. to do with that in I reality, but I'm just saying that. Most Are you Jews in yeah, I'm in kind of at a loss <laughs> here, ladies and gentlemen. But we're going to take a humming break. Israel today <laughs> in in the nation of Israel, the whatever this population is, right. uh, most are not practicing. What's the word they use for Jews? Observant, observant uh-huh. Jews at all? Okay. Observant is they, different than practicing nor believing. They don't so. believe in God. They don't worship uh, God. They don't. Well, okay. Here's the catch. Right. Uh, I, well, I don't know. Oh. Because you wanted to say most Christians, I have to say, I don't know about most Jews. No, I th- I'd say many, many Christians don't believe in God, don't well, follow God. Okay. They call themselves Christians, they're members, yeah. they got their name on a well, roll somewhere. Let me somewhere. say this. I was, actually, that can happen. I was going numerically. There's, right now in the world, uh, with all these billions of people, over 700 billion, um, 
There's all, the Jews are only between 15 and 20 million. million yeah. That's not many. There's yeah. many Jews in the United States, especially Miami and New York, New York. as there are in Israel. Uh-huh. So that's fascinating. And I'm always really, you want me to tell you a really great little story? Sure. Sure. Okay, so there's these. Sure. Sure, why not? So these, there's two little old Jewish guys sitting on a bench down in Miami. One is reading the Jewish newspaper. I'm going to hesitate saying the name. Uh-huh. But so they're reading a Jewish newspaper. And the other guy's reading, believe it or not, another old Jewish man is reading this Nazi paper. And uh, the guy reading the Jewish paper says to the Jewish reading the Nazi paper, and he says, why do you read a Nazi paper? And the old Jew reading it says, well, when I read the paper you're reading, it says how hard we got it, how put upon we are, and how oppressed we are. But when I read this, it tells us we run the world. <laughs> well, I can, that's funny. Uh, exactly and, and right. And the funny thing is, with that small population, that's not a lot of people to run the world on. No, it's really not. Uh, but uh, you exercise a great power. You, it's a great people. There's no doubt about it. Well, if you not, look at the Nobel you, Prizes, I, I you look at the artists, I, I you look want, at the musicians. Yeah, but I want to stress, it's not the people, it's God. God is the one that set this up. God's the one that made the promise. God, this all is God's doing. This is not the because Jews are Jews. has nothing to do. The, God, the promises were made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their descendants. Yeah. So this is a little bit God. of a hard sell because, I mean, even if you're not, I mean, I'm not anti-Jewish or anti-Semitic or any well, way, shape, or form. What but, a yeah, <laughs> but I'm just saying that, you know, many of the comedians, artists, musicians. And so are, I will say that many of the comedians are. Kind of foul mouth. there's a reason for the godless. comedians because they have learned that if, they're, if people are laughing, they're not killing you. Well, maybe that's what they're thinking. I don't know. But yeah, the, the other thing sounds is, like a good theory is, and I know that what you're saying that uh, by far the majority of Nobel prizes and Pulitzer prizes, etc., are written, written yeah, by Jews. Yeah. I know that it's, ad- it's to be admired. It really is, uh, and I don't have any doubt that actually every blessing, every good thing comes from the Father of Lights, as James said. All good. Things come from God, and, and well, let's do some I, I, mark. Accept it in and that, so we can get on to yeah. uh, the, okay. Uh, Joshua, the Gospel before. of Mark. You see Jesus going from person to person. We've already talked about how he approached uh, uh, his early disciples, John and James, the sons of Zebedee, uh, sons of thunder. They were called uh, in some passage as well. Uh, we talked about Jesus uh, headquartering his ministry in the northern part, the Zebulun. Uh, northern part, as the Messiah was supposed to do. Uh, one of the most interesting aspects of, of Jesus now going from person to person, individual to individual, in his relationships with people, one of the most interesting ones was this man uh, who he is a blind man. It's the only time we see Jesus healing a man in two phases. Usually he when he he touched, he healed, he commanded the demon to come out. They did it immediately, and there was no, there was no what, staging. What passage is that so people can look and, that in the Bible? In Mark chapter 8, Mark chapter we see eight. this man who is blind, ah. and Jesus heals him. But he, he, it takes him, if you look at it, just kind of reading it on the surface, yes. it looks like it takes him two tries. Two, he, he meets his fellow, right. and, and he... Uh, um, I forget the the exact. Is that where he touches his eyes? And, well, let's look at the verse. Chapter uh-huh. eight, what? Uh, verse uh, twenty-two. Twenty-two. Let's just see what that thing says. He. We only have a minute to set it up. Okay. He. Um, 
he sees this fellow and he. Wait a minute, eight twenty-two. Well, is that the right place? I'm I looking don't at think eight twenty-two. Right blindness. I see men as trees. Walking, right? No, am I wrong about well, that passage? Uh, 822 is something about feeding five loaves. Yeah, okay, I got it wrong. I'll find it during the break. But he has this fella who who uh, he touches, and, and the guy says, okay, I see better now. I see men as trees walking. And, and then he, I think he applies spittle to the ground and anoint, puts it on his eyes. And then he sees he sees he is healed kind of in the second stage. Yeah. And I like your particular understanding of that is very, very enlightening to me because we've always kind of wondered why did Jesus take two times? Was he trying to teach something to his disciples? Why Why do we see this happening in and two I've heard, stages? I've heard lots of preachers give lots of explanations. It's, I think, yeah, it's 822. Uh, when he arrived at Bethsaida, some people brought a blind man to Jesus, and they begged him to touch the man and heal him. He took the man by the hand and led him out to the village, and spitting on the man's eyes, he laid his hands on him and said, Can you see anything? Oh, I stand corrected. And he Sophie, said, I yes, look, You're right. It's 820. I see people, but I can't see them very clearly. They look like trees walking around. Oh, yeah. Then Jesus placed his hands on, on the man's eyes again a second oh, time, yeah. and his eyes were opened, and his sight was completely restored. There you go. And he could see everything clearly, and Jesus said, go back into your village on your way home. So when we come back from our break, we're going to talk about this. And I think you have a very interesting I wish, take on I this I wish I could passage. take credit for it being mine, but it's not mine. Well, it, it's, it's biblical, and it's been handed down for thousands of years. And when we come back, we'll definitely get to it. Uh, it's not coming on here for some reason, uh, the music. Is, it's not ready yet? Oh, okay. Uh, so All right. We, well, then we've, just, got, a, we've got 30 you're seconds. anticipating music. So. Um, now, the way we pop basically see this in our understanding is yes. the way we look at it is there must have been some reason for this. Yes. And some people think whether well, he was teaching his disciples something uh, in this particular case. <clears throat> but I've always liked your, your position as Jesus, as a rabbi, as a spiritual leader. He, he was looking for faith. He was looking like the woman that he healed, you know, and he's looking for that element of faith and trust in God. And so I want I want you to explain that to us when we come back. I think your perspective is very, very uh, attractive. It makes a lot of sense. I feel embarrassed if I take credit for it. It's not mine. Oh, no, I know, but it's you're the one I got it or heard it from. So we'll, we'll come back to it. Joshua fit the Battle of Jericho. We're going to get to that in the last segment of the program. If you'd like to be a part of tonight's program, you can always give us a call, 210-340-9585. 210 want to agree or disagree. That's right, 340-9585, and the Bible Live will be right back. Around Jericho, around Jericho, around Jericho. Joshua fit the battle around Jericho, and the walls come tumbling down. This is the Bible Live with Soapy Dollar. You can talk about your man called Saul, but there ain't no man like Joshua at the Battle of Jericho. Dr. Stan Shelton with offices at Loop 410 and Broadway has taken care of the Dollar family that Suzanne and me plus our three children for the past 25 years. Suzanne, tell the folks about our dentist. Well, like you say, Dr. Shelton is a dentist for a lifetime. He's got the latest technology. He's busy, but I've never had to wait. And I never dread going to the dentist. In fact, he and his staff are so personable that I actually rather enjoy it. Go to drshelton.com or call 590-7878. 
To the Bible Live with Soapy Dollar. Thank you. <laughs> we are back. We're going to continue now. Get into the Gospel of Mark, and I wanted to talk about this incident in John and Mark chapter eight, where uh, Jesus comes upon this blind man, and we read it just before the break. That he has to heal him in two stages. It looks like, and you know, we've all the big question has always been, well, why did it take two tries? This is the only only uh, healing that we say that we see. Uh, in this category of taking two attempts. He spit on the man's eyes and he said, can you see anything? And he said, I see people, but I can't. I see men as trees walking. Johnny Cash wrote a, I see men as trees walking. I see him in a, Johnny Cash wrote a song about it. And, uh, the, the, and then Jesus placed his hands on him a second time. And this time his sight was completely restored. Now, I've always liked what you've said about this because it seems to make sense because we Jesus is looking for faith. He he, he isn't going around and please forgive me I'm, I'm I'm acting like I know more than I actually do in this particular case but it doesn't seem like Jesus is just kind of going around healing everybody willy-nilly and anybody comes across and you, because I mean he didn't heal everybody in Israel there were people but but the Messiah was supposed to have healing in his hands, that he was supposed to be a healer. Uh, that was one of the um, the predictions and prophecies about the Messiah. And so Jesus uh, uh, did. He, he proved that to be true in his own life, uh, a healer and so on. But here he comes upon But most of the time it's connected to the idea of faith. He's trying to draw out faith uh, from the people, uh, trusting in God, to uh, you know, taking a spiritual step making uh, progress in their spiritual life. And so I wanted, I've liked what you said about this man, that you kind of, when you read this story, you kind of, this is what you thought of. Can you give us? Well, yeah, because the Jews have always taught as symbolism that human beings, man, woman, are like a tree. And the reason they always use the tree as symbolism is below the ground is where the roots are. That's the spiritual world. But above the ground, where the trunk is and the leaves and all that, that's the physical world. So as I read this story, it makes perfect sense to me because it's in conformity with the Jewish, ancient Jewish understanding. Well, did, can I read a passage? About, uh, Psalm 1 says, Oh, the joys of those who do not follow the yes. advice of the wicked and so on. It said, but their delight is in the law of the Lord, meditating on it day and night. They are like trees planted along the riverbank, bearing fruit each season. Their leaves never wither, and they prosper in all they so do. So you see, they, so there are a number of passages. They are and trees. And yeah. Here's one from Jeremiah, Jeremiah seventeen eight. Um, Those who trust in the Lord, they will be like a tree planted by the water. He extends its roots into a stream. And will not fear when the heat comes. Exactly. And its leaves will be green. 
So the idea is they always had the idea of a symbolizing uh -huh. a human being as a tree. They lived in two worlds. The roots are the spiritual, the physical tree is our physical world. So if Jesus is doing this, it's the way I took the story. And, of course, if you want, you don't have to agree with me, but if you want to be right, mm -hmm. you should. And <laughs> okay. so, what, so what he's doing is he's letting them see that human beings have a spiritual side. There's something spiritual about a human being. Not a dog, not a cat. They don't have uh -huh. it. But a person, a human being does. And so he's saying, see, now, oh, I see trees walk. We can agree that trees do not walk. Right. So, so, but people walk. Uh -huh. So when they're walking, he says, I see trees walking. Well, they're not walking. But the roots are in the spiritual world. And then he does it again. And what's he see? Just the okay. physical world, just the truth. So he, he knows Jesus as a, as a teacher, uh, a spiritual teacher. And he, he says, I now. So his pronouncement when the man, he touches his eyes the first time, the man says, I now see trees as men, men walking. Right. And it. And we tend to interpret that in the context of a healing of his vision, his eyes. Yeah. And, it, okay, his eyes just got a little better, and he still sees things kind of blurry. But your insight there, your first thought was, oh, he's this is a spiritual pronouncement. Well, it's I now see Jewish people. I understand that people always, are. Yeah, doves always represented, long before Jesus, doves mm -hmm. always represented a visual image, a symbolism of the what you would call the Holy Spirit. Uh-huh. Trees always symbolically represent the human being. Okay, and so he's saying, I now see men as yeah, trees. Well, exactly I now understand so. that men are spiritual beings. Right. Now, I don't know what was in his mind. I can't. We can't know that from the text necessarily. Uh, it, it, but it, to me, it was a very enlightening and very positive way to understand this experience. This is the only time it ever happens. It takes him two times. He touches the person two times to to bring about. Now you're when you what you told us about the Syrophoenician Phoenician woman, Syrophoenician woman, Syrophoenician woman whose whose child was healed. Right, right. That was there was not two stages, but there was a little bit of trans transaction going she on there. She has there to was, leave her yeah religion that uses children as prostitutes and temple virgins and temple prostitutes, uh -huh. you might say boys and girls. She has to leave that religion believe in Jesus uh -huh. as the story presents uh -huh. it, and then he heals them. Yeah. And so it seems to me that might be the uh, situation here. It's a very, it's a beautiful, I, I love the Gospel of Mark because you see Jesus going person to person, home to village to village, and he's healing, and you see children restored to their parents, you know, a dying child, or you see um People reconciled to each other. It, it's a beautiful thing, and that's why the the servant imagery comes out as Jesus as a servant, serving people, helping people, lifting people up. Um, uh, even Jesus says that, and he gives that example in uh, Mark chapter ten. He said, uh, uh, "In God's kingdom, how does one become a leader? How does one achieve greatness?" His disciples ask him, "Can we be? Uh, can we sit at the seats of honor in your kingdom? One on your right hand, and one on your left hand." Uh, these are James and John, the sons of Zebedee, and so he talks about the theme of how does one become great in this. And of course, we know about it in our world. You know, you, it takes riches, it takes influence. You got to be good looking. You got to be uh, have fame from Hollywood. You, how does one become a great, powerful person? 
and we are accustomed to the perspective that they had back then as well that that you you know you you get money you get power you get influence but Jesus says that you serve you become great by serving others uh, and he even you says know, I, I want I do want to mention mm-hmm. one thing because somebody just texted me who's a, a very a sincere Bible student mm-hmm. and. Uh, the part they bring up about the trees and the Jesus making the spit and putting it on the eyes, uh-huh. certainly there's something about that. And I have heard preachers focus on that aspect. Uh-huh. And they'll say, oh, well, he's taking, he's repairing the eyes because he's using his spit, uh-huh. his spittle, uh-huh. and he's making it into dirt. And man's made out of dirt, we're told. Uh-huh. So I've heard preachers present that angle mm-hmm. in presenting it. So he's putting the physical on top of the spiritual, and uh-huh. they can see. And I will say this that I have heard preachers say, the Christian preachers say, that at that time in Israel, there was a belief, I heard some preachers say, this is a fairly well-known one, uh, say that there was a belief that the spit of the oldest male child had healing power. I've heard that. Hmm. So all those are considerations. A Christian preacher? was Yes, something, I, I heard a Christian preacher And that say. was the idea that in the Jewish, he was talking about, in the Jewish yes, he was expressing his culture opinion. or something, yes, uh-huh. is that, is that I am not anything fr- you're familiar with? I am not familiar with it. I can't okay. say he's wrong. I'm just uh-huh. not familiar with uh-huh. it. Okay. Well, that's good. I'm glad you called, uh, texted my friend and, and uh, give us these insights. You can also give us a thought on any of these matters from uh, the Gospel of Mark or anything else you want to talk about. By Just give us a call, 340-9585. And the, um, the area code is 210 210- Three four zero nine five eight five. We'd love to talk with you and hear some of your thoughts about this. But uh, that's that miracle of the uh, touching of the man's eyes. Uh, all of these are so beautiful. And, and of course, as I was mentioning, Jesus gives this example in Mark chapter ten. He talks about the idea to to be great in God's kingdom is to be a servant, a slave of all. Uh, and Jesus himself said he came not to be served, but to serve, to lay down his life as a ransom. And uh, Jacob and I were talking before the break that here's this this man breaks into history, Jesus of Nazareth. He never he's not a prince. He's not born in a throne room in the palace. He's he never does any of the things generally accompanied, you know, that representing greatness. He never writes a book. He doesn't write a play. He doesn't. He's not a great actor. He's not a. He's not a general. He's not a naval um, admiral. He never commands an army. He never does any of the things that are connected usually with the idea of greatness. And yet here he is today, the centerpiece of the human race. And the, the we count our calendar. You know, twenty twenty A.D. from the time of our Lord. And so this incredible influence around planet Earth, uh, and he's. Basically, as a servant, uh, never left his home country, never traveled more than a hundred miles from the city of his birth. Uh, kind of a remarkable thing. There's a great poem written about that called "One Solitary Life," the power of that one solitary life. And and of course, Jesus emphasizes the the, the we achieve greatness by serving others, helping others. Well, let's go on now the, for, to another example. We had. Um, uh, let me see, Bartimaeus. I, I'm intrigued by his relationship with Mary, Martha, and uh, Lazarus. Uh, right on the outskirts of Jerusalem in a little town called Bethany or Bethphage, uh, there's this family that somehow Jesus, you know, I don't know if they're family members of his, distant cousins or something, or just 
a friendship, but Mary and her sister Martha and their brother Lazarus. Lazarus is later uh, Jesus in, in the, as a lead up to his last week on his last trip to Jerusalem before he's crucified. He raises Lazarus from the dead in uh, John chapter eleven. And uh, so this this is an unusual family. He has a great personal relationship with them. Uh, And we see him spending the night in their home there in Bethany. Let's see if there are other uh, understandings. We see Jesus um, clearing the temple. This is that famous time when for the zeal of the temple. Just so people can look at it. Yeah, uh, in chapter, in chapter, in chapter, chapter 11. Chapter 11, you say. Yeah. he cleared the temple. Uh, the, the the money changers and the, you know those and, and we've talked about the fact that there was a lot of corruption in the in the in the in the Jewish so culture society 11, 15, of that time. 16, yeah, uh huh. Yeah. And and that extended into the religious world. There were there were people who bought the yeah, uh, priesthood we, and so on. We probably should know. Uh huh. Because uh, of course the real Levites and the priests were chased out of the temple. Herod and the Romans put their boys in. Caiaphas, uh, Bar- uh, the other guy, uh, Ananias, they're not Levites. Mm-hmm. Uh, but John the Baptist is, and he's out of the temple. That's why he's down at the Jordan River. But so they would require people to come, and they'd have these money changers. Well, why are they called money changers? Because they would come, but they had them in the, as one of the, one of the Gospels says, they're in the outer court. Mm-hmm. Do you know why they're in the outer court? No, because there were these guys were not really all that stupid. They conquered Israel and put their own boys in place in the temple uh-huh. and put their own uh, Edomite king in place, Herod. They were, they were, um, they only allowed non-Jews to be money changers. Ah, uh-huh. now and why? Because they said, well, you know, maybe if we got Jews doing it. They might give another Jew a break, huh? So we can't do that. So what we're going to do is, you got to come up here, and you got to bring, let's say, oh, let's say your Roman coins, and let's say I have ten dollars in Roman coins, and I want to buy a lamb, a lamb, mm-hmm. uh-huh. or I got to have a shekel to donate because only a shekel can be used. Sort of like going to a laundromat. I see. So I give you my ten dollars in Roman money. And if you should have given me the equivalent in shekels, some stack, maybe you give me a little less because you make a little something for yourself. Uh-huh. Now I can use those shekels, and then I can buy the lamb. You're not mm-hmm. going to accept my lamb. I see. So what's happening is, the, and the reason these money changes are in the outer court, and they were not allowed to be Jews because the guys in charge didn't want to make sure that everything was collecting money. So when Jesus chases them out of the temple, he's chasing out the guys in the outer court that were not allowed to be the actual Jews. And you have made me see that one of the things that I, one of my weaknesses as I read the New Testament, one of my sources of maybe some misunderstanding was that I was always underestimating the degree of corruption and compromise that was existent in the uh, in the society of that time, not politically, uh, in politically, socially, religiously, even there was a lot of compromise and a lot of well. That's why when corruption. Pilate came to town, mm-hmm. Pilate uh, had offered a big banquet. Um, the Levites, according to Jewish and Roman history, did not attend. Nobody. Uh-huh. Well, then of course Pilate, being the ruler that he was. 
Uh, he was upset. So he, he said, go out and get everybody. Bring in my guys. Put them in there. And we're going to fire all the Levites and the priests. And he killed about half of them. The other half he left alive and sent out into Israel so they could spread the word about how tough this guy is. That's mm-hmm. why John the Baptist is down to Jordan River and not baptizing in the temple. And that's interesting that in that, in that particular passage about uh, clearing the temple, uh, the, the merchants and so on out of the temple, he gets into a conflict with them about it, and he cites John the Baptist. Mm-hmm. It's interesting in that context, he is, his reply to them was, did John's baptism come from heaven or was it human? So I think there was a connection there uh, in their minds and the argument they made about um, the, the legitimacy of, of, of the religious legitimacy. Because Jesus, in the, when, they, when the religious leaders asked Jesus on what authority he cleared the temple of the merchants, uh, he asked them a question in return, which silenced them. He said, did John's baptism come from heaven or was it human? And, of course, they didn't dare say it was just human because people revered John and admired him as a, a true prophet. And, and they didn't want to say his baptism was from God because that would legitimize his ministry. And, of course, which uh, he had turned, John the Baptist had directed his followers in his ministry toward Jesus. Uh, and so it was a... It was a perfect, wise question to ask them, but it Oh, you're it not going to believe what I just found. What did you just find? Oh, man, oh, man, oh, man, oh, man. <laughs> I just found this note looking in uh, some co- Christian commentary. This okay. is in a Christian setting. Okay. Uh, it says uh, in 11.15, when he says he came to Jerusalem, it says, This refers to the court of the Gentiles, the only part of the temple in which Gentiles could worship and gather for prayer. There was buying and selling. Jewish pilgrims to the Passover feast needed animals, and they were met with these certain requirements. They had to buy and exchange money. And they had to buy them from the Gentiles, and the Gentiles would then collect the money. And then it goes on to explain what they did with the money, which, of course, most of it ended up going to Rome. And that, I just happened to notice, it's in the Christian commentary. Okay, good, good, good. It makes sense of it for us. Uh, Well, let me jump on to another thing uh, that I found intriguing, that Jesus um, is questioned by the Sadducees. Now, you talked about this last week. The difference between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they both believed in life after death, but the Sadducees did not believe in physical resurrection. That is correct. The physical body it's being It's an error to say they didn't believe in. See, when people say, they say, they, they, the Sadducees did not believe in resurrection. Well, they're equating resurrection with an afterlife. Oh, if there's no afterlife, why would you even bother with any of this stuff, right? Uh-huh, uh-huh. Of course the Sadducees believed in an afterlife. The difference was the Pharisees are, had the same idea that Christians have today, that there's a physical resurrection. The Sadducees said, no, you just go back to God where you came from. I, I have discovered that not all Christians believe in, in, a, in a physical, physical. resurrection. Oh. I, I think... I believe, though, that most do. I don't know if John would agree with me there or not, but most seem to have uh, the idea. Of, and it's because the resurrection of Jesus was a physical resurrection. That's he rose bodily. You see, and it kind of, uh, I'm going to share something I rarely share. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to give you any money, so forget that. Okay. But <laughs> I am going to Good say this. You had me all uh, excited there. What I'm saying is, you know, the, I, so let's say that there was a controversy between is there a physical resurrection or is there not? Mm-hmm. Well, with Jesus and the example we're given, 
He dies physically on the cross, and the story tells us he physically resurrected. That, to me, is teaching the idea that Christians have today, most Christians, I guess, Mm -hmm. have today, that there's a physical resurrection. So from that point of view, he settles that issue for everybody. But this is the other thing, and I see no conflict in what he does with the physical resurrection with accepting the Jewish traditional idea that the spirit still goes back to God. I know right. right. So, uh, yeah. Okay. So anyway, I find that fascinating, <laughs> but I think that, and actually the Pharisees absolutely, absolutely consistently taught that there was a physical resurrection. Um, interestingly, if we go back, if we jump to the end of the book where Jesus r- rises from the grave, and uh, in, in chapter 15, Mary Magdalene and the other women go to the body, go to the tomb, and they find that he is not there. And Mary, I'm not sure if it's in the Gospel of Mark, but she uh, sees Jesus and mistakes him for the gardener, in, in, uh, keeper of the grounds there at the in, in the uh, cemetery. And, and, and Jesus says, don't touch me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. And a lot of people are always wonder, why did Jesus tell her? Mary not not to touch him, uh, and I suspect that had to do with the, the the Jewish laws about touching the body of a dead person. That she would would that figure in? Do you think maybe because it's always a lot of us have always puzzled. Why well, didn't he tell Jesus? He, he's alive. He said, "I've not ascended but to he, the Father." But he wouldn't be a dead person. He'd be alive. Uh-huh. So I, I I don't take it quite that way. Uh huh. I take it like this. Are you familiar with the story about what was the fellow's name when the ark started to fall on the ground? Yeah, uh, I know. um, mm, Uh, It'll come to us. Yeah, it'll come to us. Uriah. Uriah. So. No, that's Uriah the Hittite was someone else. Okay, well, let's just go on. Okay, so remember the ark? It's being taken back to Jerusalem. Uzziah. Uzziah. So it starts to. That's right, Uzziah. Thank you. So the ark starts to slide off this cart, and fall on the ground. And he puts his hand on it, and he dies. Yes. Ah. Ah, interesting. Now, you and, my, you and me thinking practically, we're saying, that's a nice thing. He's going to stop the ark from falling on the ground. Why, why should he get killed over this, right? Uh-huh, right. Well, it's because of this. There's nothing dirty about the ground for God. The ground does not sin. What's dirty for God is sin. And he was a sinner, and he touched the holy ark. I see. Uh-huh. I see. Maybe so that. Uh-huh. So Mary, she's physical. She's still a sinner. I see. I hadn't talked to, thought about that angle. I, I'd always wondered, I wonder if that has to do with the ru- Jewish laws and rules about touching a well, dead body. Maybe I, I could see that argument. I could yeah. see that, uh, that uh, point of view. But I'm thinking, well, yeah. he's resurrected. He's alive. Yeah. Yeah, but anyway, I'm just a, thinking yeah. that it may be the idea of what's dirty for God the earth is, does not sin, so the earth is not dirty for God. Well, there's an interesting passage in chapter 12 where the Sadducees ask Jesus, they're kind of trying to trap him in this question about life after death, and they say that, well, this woman uh, marries seven husbands, yes. and after the first husband dies, she marries again. She, uh-huh. she must uh-huh. have really been a, a quite an unusual, oh, beautiful woman, the, 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 or a gifted woman, or uh, a rich no, woman, no, no, no. The or something. The bottom story is she married seven there's times. A, there's a backstory. Yeah, the backstory is they're suggesting something about Jesus and his heritage. 
Oh. That's the backstory. Okay. And he catches what the meaning is. That's why he gets a little irritated because they're saying something nasty about his mama. But ah. I'm going to tell you something. I know the answer to that parable, but I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> okay. And if somebody wants to call in and say what they think it is, we'll see if somebody gets it. I do know the answer. Now, these parables are not put in the Bible to just stump us and say, gosh, I have no idea what that means. You're supposed to be able to figure these out, but you can only figure them out if you use the Torah. Mm-hmm. Okay. And using the Torah, I've unraveled, quite frankly, all the parables. Okay. Well, this isn't particularly a parable. Well, it's just these the Sadducees ask him a question, yeah. and they couch. It's a theoretical question. Yeah. This woman marries seven men and so on. And then they ask her after that, you know, after the resurrection, right. when she's physically resurrected, whose wife is she going to be after uh-huh. the resurrection? Uh-huh. And what so, does Jesus say? Um, does he have an We'll answer? talk about it when we come back. Okay, but then we got to get to Joshua because okay, I really want to get to some stuff. We will. Out. We'll get to in, back into the first opening chapters of Joshua and when we get back from this break. Uh, but we're going to answer the question about uh, this woman that married seven husbands. Yeah. Whose wife will she be well, I'm not going to answer resurrection. somebody calls in, but I do know the answer. All right. Well, we'll be back. Don't go away, folks. We'll be back for our final segment right after this short break. You're listening to The Bible Live with Soapy Dollar. is the Bible Live with Soapy Dollar. We are one, the oneness of God's people, the people of God, the people of faith, spiritual Israel, whatever you want to call it. We're back for our final segment of the Bible Live broadcast. Let's finish up this comment about the Gospel of Mark. Uh, uh, I think you had a real good comment there from... Um, what was his name? R.C. Sproul. Sproul. About this uh, this remark that Jesus makes to them about this woman marrying seven husbands and so on. And in, in he takes them back to Exodus chapter 3 and says that uh, God says, I am, present tense, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And those three, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, had died long before Moses. And so the point is, is that God is the God of the living, not the dead, which is a you know, really subtle but very clear point that he's making. But you said that R.C. Sproul has a, well, a, Sproul, different, Sproul's a little bit of a different take, take on that. Is that. The reason they got mad at him is because he was using God's name, because in Exodus chapter 3 is, God, is God's name, mm-hmm. one of them anyway. And so Sproul makes the argument that 
he's using the name. That's why they got mad. However, we do, or we are struck by the fact that they come back and say, but you're not 50 years old yet. <laughs> so that seems to be a conflict. Now, I personally... And he said, before Abraham was, I am. Uh, yeah. So I personally yeah. take those two to be... I can make those things fit together, and I'll tell you how. Mm. I think Jesus is making a point that they are not even familiar with actual Jewish theology. Because they should have known that Jewish theology is they are alive. Yeah. And they were mistaking and saying, well, you're not 50. And he's not talking about being 50 years old as a human being. He's talking about Jewish theology that still is the same today, that they are still alive. Mm-hmm. Okay. Interesting. Interesting. Well, we see Jesus... Uh, this proclamation of the, of the two great commandments, love the Lord your God with all your soul, your mind, your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. You know, I've kind of taken that in my later years of life. Uh, somehow that I ask myself with some frequency, Sophie, do you really love God? And boy, it's a hard question to ask her. If you really an- answer, if you really truly ask yourself that question, sometimes it's a little harder to, to answer. Do I truly, do I, do I love you, God? Now, I'm getting at the older stage of life where I look back on life and I see how faithful and good he's been. And I, I think there are times when I can actually say, you know, Lord, I love you, Lord. You, you are so gracious to me and so on. But it is a, it's so a very— So if you were standing there and mm-hmm. Moses had died and mm-hmm. Joshua said, okay, guys, let's go on, would you have been faithful enough to go? Into, into yeah. the promised land, yeah. you're saying? Yeah. Oh, sure, yeah. Okay. I think so. All right. I, I'm just, I'm kind of an adventurous type. And uh, let's give it a shot. Let's see what happens. You know, well, let's and, take a look. Let's see. Uh, and and I really want to save a few minutes to get to yep, the chapter yep. five on. Let me see if there's anything else I want to mention from Mark. Just really quickly, I already told you one time that Mark uh, at at the um, Garden of Gethsemane in chapter fourteen, verse, we see John Mark here, the author of the book escapes from the grasp of one of the Roman soldiers and leaves his tunic and his clothes behind, and he runs off into the dark naked. Yeah, that's found in Mark chapter 14. Uh, uh, Peter denies Jesus three times, as, as Jesus said that he would. Uh, let me see. Joseph of Arimathea, this rich person who owns the um, tomb where Jesus' body is laid. Uh, I, bet, I guess that's about it. Just... Uh, mainly, though, we see these these simple stories of of the, Jesus as his servant nature, serving people, loving people, and giving us that example, and admonishing us to be people as well who love and serve other people. Well, let's go back to Joshua. Well, okay, so actually what you've got here is all this story in the Gospels. Everything takes place in Israel. Mm-hmm. But how did they get into Israel? The book of Joshua. Mm-hmm. Now, Joshua is an unusual text in that... If everything had gone correctly, there should have only been six books in the Bible. It should have been the Torah and Joshua, because uh-huh. then they would have lived by the Torah. But we know they didn't. Okay. Now, let me just... What's well, another one of those what-if questions, right? Because you asked me before, what if uh-huh. the people of Israel had acknowledged Jesus as the Messiah in, in, in mass if they had turned... Then the time of the Gentiles will be over. And that means that maybe Australians, maybe people in Canada, maybe Mexico, they can't get in. So maybe this is all part of God's plan. Yeah, it could be. And, and of course, that's just conjecture. It could have been other other 
outworking. Um, God could have done an even yeah. greater miracle of, oh, of yeah. bringing he, in. He could have done stuff. Yeah. Through, through that. Yeah, but anyway, so okay, let's go Joshua. So chapter 1. So, uh-huh. so it's an unusual book because you got, uh, there's no doubt, it starts off by saying, look, God's talking to um, to Joshua, and he says, look, my servant Moses is dead. Prepare to cross the Jordan. Uh, you and the entire people. And I and uh, I will give you now listen, look at verse 3. Uh-huh. I shall give you every spot on which the soles of your feet tread. Wow. Now, that brings us back to something about Abraham. Abraham, actually, his excursions in Genesis uh-huh. actually lay out the physical boundaries of Israel. Well, he actually, when all these places he's walking, he lays it out. Now, and I want to show you something. Look in uh, verse 8. Uh, in my version, it says, God is telling, the book of the Torah shall not depart from your mouth. Oh, man, I love this verse, yes. All right, so he's telling him, look, here's the requirement. You shall not let the Torah depart from your mouth. But look at the preceding verse. Do not turn aside from it to the right or left. You know how Jesus says something, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing? You familiar with that verse? Uh uh Well, that's what he's talking about. What's he talking about? And then the very next sentence ties it into the Torah. The book of the Torah shall not depart from your mouth. What's he saying is, you do God's laws. You don't make it more severe and go to the left. That's more severity. Uh You don't go to the right and become more compassionate. I've already built compassion and severity into the book of Torah. You follow my laws. You don't make judgments and change it. Don't go to the right or the left. Let the law not depart from your mouth, is what it says. That's what Jesus is saying. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. If your left hand says, this is what God says I must do, don't you override and say, but my heart says, and it's compassionate to do. They are not supposed to do that. God's already built compassion and judgment. Don't turn to the, the left or to the right. I, I like about this that you should meditate on it day and night. And you know, we think of that, oh, studying God's word, memorizing the scriptures, and so on. And all of that's wonderful, but it's all toward a specific end, so that you will be sure to obey everything written in God's law. So the the point is not just to know the laws, memorize them, and know them in our head, well, but obey them, that's right. <laughs> which is yeah. which is a very different. It's a very practical matter. And then, and after after they cross over, as you know, J- Moses is dead. Joshua is going to cross over in chapter two. It says, "Joseph, son of Nun." By the way, where Joseph, J- uh, Joshua? I mean, where did Joshua get his name? Well, uh, Yeshua. It means salvation. Yeah, where did he actually get his name? Oh, Joshua. Well, um, it, it's actually Jesus' name, right? Yeshua. Uh, uh, actually, his see. name, but, uh, his original name was Hosea. It's in Numbers. I see. And and because of his faithfulness and his loyalty, uh-huh. Moses took the first pronounceable syllable of God's name, the Yud, the uh-huh. Y, we'll say, uh-huh. and added it to Hosea. And it comes out Yeshua, or in English, Joshua it means salvation, right? Salvation of the it, Lord. It can't, you know? yeah, exactly. But the important thing is to know 
that you can sometimes you have a letter added to somebody's name sometimes you have it taken away and i don't want to get a sidetrack but there is a guy in the genealogy of jesus and matthew that that they take away the first letter of god's name and he's in the genealogy but that's another matter for when you get to matthew Oh, I know who that is, I think. Okay, so okay. now what we do is we're going to go over in Chapter 2. He's going to go over yeah. the, the Jordan. They cross the Jordan. Uh, and they they approach the great walled city of Jericho, ah. which I think historically three chariots could ride side by side in this very at, at least At least three. But what does Jericho mean? Uh, I don't know. It means. This is why my Christian brothers and sisters need to know this. All right. Let us so know. They're going to call. Uh, they're going to. Jericho is city of the moon god. Ah, huh. uh, so what God is doing? The first, He's taking them from Mount Sinai. What did they hear at Mount Sinai? The shofar. Uh-huh. Okay, so we're going to see this later on next week. But what happens is, so they take the sound over. That's why they march around the walls. Then they blow the shofar so they can hear the sound of God's voice. And they're carrying what? Yes, the Torah. You guessed it. And the walls come tumbling down. And why? Because this is the first city they come to, and it's the city of the moon god. Uh And I must say, in all fairness, today there is a religion that their main religion is the moon. Uh A very famous large religion. Mm -hmm. Well, Islam. And the and to, and today, even in the Islamic villages at Jericho, which is reestablished, they actually have a, a steel or a big plaque outside, and it says Jericho, uh, city of the moon god. Uh-huh. So that's what. So what you're doing is you're getting somebody is actually going to bring God is going to defeat the the moon god, and then he says now. I've taken care of that one. Now, you guys take the next one. I'm going to give you something very small to start with, AI. Uh-huh. You see? Uh-huh. Say now. Uh, anyway, so we're going to go on now. Well, let's talk about this this very unusual individual in the city of, of, of well, uh, let's Jericho. Let's, let's hold it down to two or three minutes. Named Rahab. Her name is Rahab. And she is this. She's either a prostitute, or the same word is used for an innkeeper. Innkeeper, that's right. Uh, and, and she's there, and she protects uh, these spies that go in to kind of spy out well, the land. Does, she does that. She protects them, and then she is guaranteed because of that, and because of her faith mm-hmm. in. She somehow has heard about the God of Abraham, well, Isaac, and Jacob. Everybody knows. They know everybody about knows. Sinai. Yeah. They, and this happened many years before, 40 years before. Well, everybody knows Sinai Everybody did. knows Israel's on So its she's way. either old enough to have heard about it as a little girl or it's been passed down to her. But she knows about uh, God delivering the people of Israel from Egypt. And she is a believer uh, in uh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And she declares herself so. And they guarantee her that she and her family, those that will stay in her room and in her home, uh, they will hang a scarlet rope from right. the window. And they keep their word. And they keep their and word. This and this is, is not delivered. biblical, but in Jewish tradition, mm-hmm. she ends up marrying somebody. Joseph. Uh, 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 Joshua. Ah. Yeah. And it's not mentioned in the Bible, but that's a Jewish thought and Jewish tradition. It's interesting. But we do know that she ends up in the... 
ancestry. She's one of the uh, three the or four ancestry women. ancestry in, the, in, in the, the New Testament of Jesus. Of Jesus right. uh, of Nazareth, which is so, interesting because right, she was now, not a Jew. She, yeah. In that sense, ethnically, but she became a believer well, in the God of Abraham, Isaac, well, and She Jacob. becomes part of Israel when she right. becomes a believer. Exactly right. right. That, so, and in chapter 4, and reason it hurts, I really want to get to five. Uh-huh, uh-huh. But in chapter 4, as they're going to cross, uh, after the entire people had finished crossing the Jordan, God said to Joshua, Choose twelve men from your people, one man per tribe. Instruct them as follows. Take twelve stones from the Jordan where the priest's feet stand firm. So the, this is the second time that the waters have stopped. Now, as they, they're carrying the ark, and as they start, just like back at the Reed Sea, uh-huh. as they start to cross into it, the water stopped. And the, and there's the priests, they're carrying the ark, and they're holding it in the ark, and the water stops. This is the second time in the Bible where the water has stopped. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And now, and I want to show you something. It says, and they crossed on dry land. Now, why is that important? I see these couple of movies right now about the... They made a new movie about Moses. It was on TV. Uh-huh. And and it shows the after they leave Egypt and they're crossing that the ground is still muddy. Uh-huh. I thought, don't they hire any kind of people that read the Bibles to write these? <laughs> because what it says is... They cross on dry ground. Yes. Yeah. And you see, if it's... Not muddy ground. If it's still muddy, that means there's still some water in it, right? Uh-huh, and uh-huh. what does that mean? That means that God wasn't quite powerful enough to get rid of all the water. Uh, okay, okay. So this is why it tells us they crossed on twelve, on dry land. But they take their twelve rocks from inside of the river bed, and they're going to take them over and set them up to where. In fact, it says, uh, "This will be a sign among you, and when your children ask uh, in the future, what are these stones, the twelve they took from the water bed? Uh-huh. Uh, you shall tell them." The Jordan rivers were cut off here because the Ark of God's Covenant. When when we crossed the Jordan, Jordan's waters were cut off. The stones shall be a permanent memorial for the Israelites. The Israelites. So, that's what's going on. But it goes further. Look down in chapter 4, verse 9. Then uh-huh. Joshua said, uh, let's take 12 stones. In the middle of the Jordan. Ah, so he, but where does he get them from? He gets them from the previous shore. I see. So he takes 12, and he stacks them up so they're above the water. And it says, this place uh, in the Jordan, in the place where the feet of the priests are carrying the Ark of the Covenant that had rested, and they will remain there to this day. And so the priests carrying the Ark stood in the Jordan until all the instructions that God had commanded Joshua to tell the people were all carried out, just as Moses had also instructed Joshua. So they take 12 rocks from the shore. They put them in and they stack them up. But they take 12 from the bottom of the seabed, Jordan River, uh-huh. and they carry those over to put up as a memorial. And there's things that gets written on that. We actually will see what gets written on that later. But there's actually, the, it actually gets written there, and it's the entire Torah. I'll be. So anyway, now I want to show you something. If you look over at Chapter 4, uh, verse uh, 19. The people came up from the Jordan on the tenth day of the first month. Ah, that's interesting. Tenth day, first month? Mm-hmm. Tenth day, first month. Where does that ring a bell from? Ding, dong, ding, dong, ding. Sinai? No, 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 no. Take another guess. Well, what day did they take the lamb in Egypt? Oh, Passover. Yeah, ten days before. Or, oh, okay. Or four days before Passover, right? Okay, so... I take on the 10th day. That's uh, chapter 4, verse 19. 
And uh, they had the first Passover in Canaan, in the Promised Land. Well, I said, but something has to happen first. And then verse, let's see, uh, verse twenty-one. And he said to the Israelis or the Israelites, "When your children ask the fathers in the future, what are these stones? You shall explain to them, Israel crossed the Jordan here on dry land, for and you, and the Lord dried up the waters of the Jordan before you." Uh, and crossed over just as the Lord had done so on the Reed Sea. So this is the second time. People a lot of times don't realize there's a second uh-huh. time water's blocked uh-huh. up. And they had dried up. And like I say, when I watch some of this on the movies, like I saw this recent Moses movie, and they're, they're showing the wagons and they're getting stuck in the mud and they're going, I'm thinking, doesn't anybody read this before they write it and publish it? And what bothers me is, is it's actually saying that God wasn't quite powerful enough to make all the water leave the mud. Well, that's the point they're telling us dry, 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 is they want us to understand that God could make all the water go. Interesting point, isn't it? Yes, it is. Now, before they went, and this will be our last chapter yes, tonight, uh-huh, what I uh-huh. want to get to is chapter 5. Right. Okay, now, this is chapter 5. Look at chapter 5, and it says, at that time, God said to Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the Israelites, the Israelis again, a second time. Now, they're not getting, they're not getting circumcised twice. And here's my first question for you, Soapy. What on their body got circumcised? Stump you, didn't I? Don't well, know how kinda, I no, uh, didn't stump me, but uh, I, I guess... Yeah, are you talking about this particular? Uh, anytime, anytime the circumcision. Well, the foreskin and the males of the uh, population, uh-huh. right? Yeah. Well, okay. Now let me ask you: Is that my little finger, my nose, my ear? No, no. it's no. the male sexual organ. Uh-huh. But how do you know that? I don't know that from the scriptures because yeah, it doesn't do ever say exactly. I always exactly. love to tell, especially some Christian preachers uh-huh, and stuff, uh-huh. how do you know? You preach on circumcision. Uh-huh. How do you know what it's about? Because nowhere in the Torah, nowhere in the Bible does it ever identify what thing in your body was circumcised. In fact, in Jeremiah, it talks about circumcise your heart. It says nothing. Yet everybody knows and everybody preaches, and they're correct. It's the male sexual organ. Uh-huh. But the question is Why? And the question is, how do they know? They can accept that oral tradition from the Jews because the Jews told them, and they understand, and they're right. But the point is this, no pun intended, but the point is this, that if that is accepted and preached, which is correct, how come the rest of what things mean from the Jews is not accepted? What about wedding rings? What about tombstones on graves? Where's all that come from? Well, the Jews in Genesis. But let's go on and see what else got, because we're, we're cramped for time. Uh-huh. So, uh, let's see. So, uh, verse 4. And so, this is why Joshua circumcised all the people who had left Egypt, uh, and the males that were fit for war. Now, this is unusual, because usually the males are to be circumcised on the eighth on day. On the eighth day of their birth, now, after their birth. Now, can a baby give permission to be circumcised? No. Of course not. Then why the eighth day? I'm going to lace this up for you, and I think it's beautiful. Okay. Um, now, in the Muslim world, we know that uh, Ishmael was born, and he did get circumcised at age 13. Among the Muslims, they do circumcise at age 18. I'm sorry. 13. 13, 13. And they make the argument, interestingly enough, that it's a matter of free will, because the child says, well, I don't want to do that. 
the sort of free will thing. They say, well, they argue that it's a, it's a great thing because they get the choice. That's not Jewish. The idea is you don't get a choice. You're in the covenant. Now, where in the world would I get something like that from? Well, I get it from, it goes back into Genesis. It goes from 12 to 17, but in particular, chapter 15 of Genesis. It says that Abraham, uh, God said, take some animals, some bulls, some rams, etc. Well, it took him all day long. He cut them in half, and he laid them. But it's essential that Abraham does not walk through there. He's not making a covenant with God. God sends a furnace, a flame between the animals. That's his altar. That's God's altar. He burns up those animals. That's why they go through. It's burned up like an altar like you might do. But it's important that only God does it. God is making the covenant. It is not a contract. It's a covenant from God. It's a unilateral, one-sided deal. God said, I'm doing this. That's why it's essential that Abraham does not walk through those separated, those parted animals, Mm -hmm. because then it would be him making a deal, which would support the Islamic idea that that I'm doing it out of my free will. God said, I'm going to give this land to you. This is my covenant with you, and I keep my word. Now, the Jewish baby boys get done on the eighth day because it's not essential. They give it because it's a covenant from God. And it comes from, especially, it's 12 through 17 in Genesis. But 15, and we've been studying this in one Torah that I was in for about three, four weeks. I was quiet for about three weeks, but I have started saying something. But here's the point. Um, that God is the only one with his furnace, his altar. He burns up these animals. He goes through the cut parts. Now, this is the idea, and believe it or not, in chapter 15, verse 8, it uses the word, the Hebrew word for covenant. Ah, so this is what you got. This is the vertical. This is from God to Abraham, and God says to you and your descendants. That's the vertical, from Mm -hmm. God down to earth, right? Abraham. Then, in chapter 17, God says, now I want you to do circumcision on all the males. That's the horizontal. So we got the coming from God. Otherwise, it's just saying, do this. It's a nice mm-hmm. little thing to do. It's a ritual. Not so. It has something to do with something else. So it comes from God. And it actually uses the word. And in the Hebrew, in, translated to English, it's called the covenant of the pieces or covenant of the parts. So he's giving a covenant. And then and Abraham doesn't go through only God. Then by Genesis 17, he says, Now, I want you to start circumcising all the male children. Now, at that time, Ishmael is 13. But, but uh, his boy Isaac is only eight, at eight days he gets circumcised. But why that particular ritual? Because it's covered, because that's where the generations and the seed comes from for all the generations. Mm -hmm. That theme, I'm only going to hurry because of time, Mm -hmm. but that same theme is carried forward on when they put the blood over in Egypt, they put the blood over the door frame. Mm -hmm. Why? Why not on the roof? Why not on the windows? Why not on the walls? Only door frame, because that's symbolic of a circumcision again, you see. Mm -hmm. And there's another circumcision, and the word is used. It's the rainbow. When God Mm -hmm. circumcised mankind by the sign of the rainbow, and it actually uses the Hebrew word, Mm. circumcised them out of death. He said, I won't do it this way again. But, so this is going on. So this gets passed on. So they're in the covenant. 
Now, that's the biblical understanding. That's the Jewish understanding. Mm -hmm. uh, well, the one final thing we see here in chapter 5 oh. is, and it's kind of, it, it's marked as, an, and it's a significant, they have, God has been feeding the people of Israel for these 40 years in the wilderness with manna, this, this miraculous bread supply, provision, and quail. And on the day after their first Passover in Canaan, that great provision of God for them as in it disappears because now they're in the promised land, the land of milk and honey. Now the provision will come from the land itself that God has right. brought them to. That's right. The manna ceased on the next day. Mm -hmm. Now I want to show you what happened. Look, I want to go back. We'll go back and look at verse 10. That's 510. It says, And they went into Jericho and paid the Passover sacrifice or offering on the 14th day. That's the day that they did it in Egypt. But what day did they first take the lamb? They took it on the tent. So you see, we got the tent. So you got to get ready. On the tent, they're told. And on the 14th, they go. And I'm out of time. So well, I, give I, us your last I just want to say that. So uh, always be the kind of person you would like to have for a parent. See you next Sunday, folks. Thanks for joining us here on The Bible Live. The Bible Live is dedicated to helping restore the Bible to our culture. Mailing address is P.O. Box 18888. That's Box 18888. San Antonio, Texas 78218. Hear the entire Bible every year on The Bible Live, weeknights at 9.30 on this great station. Then join Soapy every Sunday evening at 9 o'clock for fun, inspiration, and valuable prizes on The, the Bible, Bible Live Quiz Show. Show. Visit our website, BibleLive.com. That's BibleLive.com for more information about Soapy and the Bible Live broadcast. You may also order materials at the website and make tax-deductible donations to help minister to our military personnel and broadcast the entire Bible every year to America and the world. <laughs>